your description of all of the ways in which we are educating students to be compliant, to be afraid of taking initiative, to fear failure, I think is a profound effect that we really haven't analyzed. Human beings learn through trial and error. That's how we learn. How do we learn to talk? How do we learn to walk? What if somebody had said to us, I'm sorry, you cannot talk until you are able to talk in complete and grammatically correct sentences? Paralysis. Same with walking. Sorry, only a straight line, none of this crawling stuff. Bicycle riding, oh my gosh, that's out of the question because we know you're going to fall and skin your knee. So we are training kids to be terrified of mistakes and errors. And yet in the adult world, particularly in the innovation economy, trial and error is the methodology. I mean, they call it iteration going from 1.0 to 2.0, but it's trial and error. And if you really think about it, I've done this countless times, Josh. I've asked large audiences, how many of you have learned more from your mistakes than your successes? And nearly every hand will go up over and over again, all over the world. And then I simply ask, well, then why, why on earth do we penalize kids for making mistakes and making them terrified of so-called failure? I want to get rid of the F word in school, Josh. Get it completely out of our vocabulary because it paralyzes teachers as much as it does kids. Teachers are afraid of trying something new for fear that they'll be failed and be punished by the students who say, I hated that, or the parents. To me, it's one of the, and I, I think you really do pinpoint, you know, the destructiveness of this problem for leaders being paralyzed and unable to take initiative, unable to try new things and learn through trial and error. Hi, this is Josh, and this is The Joshua Spodek Show, formerly Leadership in the Environment. I still bring you leaders in the area of the environment in the form of leaders and role models. Everyone treats stewardship like a burden or a chore, deprivation, sacrifice. So did I until I actually tried it seriously. It is a joy. Everything about it. We're here to share that joy. Meet amazing world-renowned people from all parts of life. Hear about them, what the environment means to them, and hear most of them find something meaningful to act on and then to share their experience. Why? Because stewardship and acting to help others for something greater than all of us creates about the greatest feeling humans can get, as does fresh air, clear water, delicious food, and clean land. That's what we're bringing you. I learned about Tony Wagner several years ago in the movie Most Likely to Succeed, which I highly recommend. After seeing the movie, I read his book, Most Likely to Succeed, and then his book, The Global Achievement Gap, completely fascinating. And for those not in education, the overlap between educating someone and leading someone, between education and leadership, is huge. And I didn't realize that until I started learning from him project-based learning, how to start with empathy, how to teach children, how to teach, well, I teach adults in new ways. Well, new for me, but that have been around for a long time. In this conversation, we start by him sharing the problems that he sees with education, which I believe you'll recognize. And I recommend please reading between the lines in what he says on our ineffective leadership in politics, business, and especially the environment. When he talks about education, I think what he says applies equally there. We teach about facts and analysis, not skills. I've recently developed the view that if you haven't acted, you don't know what you're talking about in the environment. That is, people think that they're experts. They've read, you know, I've read this and this is what you should do, but they haven't acted. They don't know the social and emotional skills that go into acting on the environment. It's not just use less of some of plastic or admit less, you have to change your life. You have to figure out how you're going to interact with the people around you. What's causing our environmental problems isn't a lack of knowledge or facts, but what to do, how to do it, how to motivate ourselves, how to take on challenges that school has taught us not to do. He talks about what we don't teach and what we could teach, things missing from many areas in life as people practice compliance instead of leading. I recommend listening to everything that he says, but also when he says education, at the same time, I recommend substituting leadership for what he says and see how well it applies. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Tony Wagner. Tony, how are you? I'm great, Josh. Great to join you. Before starting to talk to you, I thought this was going to be more of a leadership-based conversation at the end of leadership and environment. But actually, I found out that there's a lot of environmental part uh, history to you, too. Uh, if it's okay with you, I want to talk about leadership and education, because I guess I, I found out about you from seeing the movie Most Likely to Succeed and then reading the book Most Likely to Succeed. And they started me going from teaching as a sort of 
well, I guess coercive and lecture-based to project-based and starting from the motivations of the student. And I want to get to the environment later. And, and I feel like my leadership style and my teaching style are converging. And you've been a big part of that. And I suspect that if we just talk about your educational style, it'll start rubbing off on listeners. <laughs> and one of the big things also in Most Likely to Succeed, the book, and actually both the book and the movie, there's a lot of problems with education that I never saw, mainstream education. And I wonder if you could talk about some of what people might not notice that are problems with education. Is that jumping in too much of like being negative? I hope not. No, I, I, I think it's an important question for people to grapple with. We tend to think that we have the best education system in the world because we have the best economy and so on. And in fact, our education system only works for a very small number of kids. So let me break it down for you a little bit. Let's start with high school. 20% of our kids never complete high school. They're done. They're cooked. There's minimum wage jobs for them at best. Now let's talk about the 80% that do finish high school. Of that group, about 60% go on to college. So we're talking about 40% of the 80, nearly half, just half, never go to college, never go to technical school, never do any higher education. They're about in the same category as the kids who never graduated from high school. They're, they're done too. So now we're talking about nearly half the kids. They just are not prepared for anything. They're not prepared for work. They're not prepared for citizenship. And they're not prepared for lifelong learning. They have no skills. Because high school isn't about skills, is it? It's about content knowledge. It's about serving seat time. All right, now let's go on to what everybody says is the magic solution for every kid. Go to college. Okay, see, we got 60% of our graduates going on to college. Well, guess what? Only about half of them ever complete a degree, period. The rest are done because they're dropping out with enormous debt, again, with having acquired few, very few, if any, skills. And on the job market, they're just fodder. There's very little for them. So we talk about a full employment economy, and I'm going to come to that in a minute. Okay, so now we've got the kids who graduate from college or go on to some, complete some form of post-secondary. Of that group, half of that group can only get jobs that basically are not jobs for a BA degree student. They're BA restas, they're BA tenders. They're kids earning maybe a little more than minimum wage, but not using their credentials. And they're earning an average of about $33,000, $10,000 less than if they had a job that actually required a BA degree. So you, you, you count it all up and you say that, that our education system is maybe working for 20% of our kids. And one of the biggest lies we're foisting onto kids is the idea that if you go to college, it's, it's a magic elixir. It's a solution. And it's not. Our full employment economy, in fact, belies the fact that we have large numbers of, of recent college grads and kids who never graduated who are uh, part-time employees, who are employees of minimum wage who are never going to be able to pay back their college debt, which averages about $35,000 per kid. And essentially, uh, the, the education system has failed them. Now, I don't blame teachers. I want to be really, really clear, Josh. This is not teachers' fault. This is the fault of an obsolete system that was developed at the dawn of the industrial economy to batch process large numbers of kids for very basic skills in high school. And then the problem in college, of course, is that it is a system that is totally focused on acquiring content knowledge in discrete buckets or silos and not the application of that knowledge, which develops the real skills. In the world of Google, Josh, the world simply no longer cares how much our students know because that's a commodity. What the world cares about is what they can do with what they know. And our education system has not made that transition. And that's everybody's problem and no one's fault. It's totally different than what most people think. I guess there's some sort of apex fallacy of thinking, like looking at what Harvard does and thinking that's somehow representative of most of the system. And it's not. It's not even close. And I think a lot of people, when they think college, they think of like some green campus or something like that. 
And that's not the case at all. And we think it is. And, you know, you said how it's teaching factual recall-based knowledge and facts, which in the age of the internet, those facts are available all the time. And if you, if you think you're, tell me if I'm thinking about it wrong, a lot of things I think came from things that you said uh, in, in terms of education. But I think if you think that you're, what makes you valuable for some position is, is your knowledge, you're not useful. In fact, if you think that you're like, I have a special knowledge that others don't, people want to work around you and make you not important. That's what it feels like in the, in the job world. You want people doing things. No, I, I agree. I think the issue is that jobs today require skills that we simply are not teaching. First and foremost, the ability to think critically. Well, college teaches some of that sometimes to some kids, but it's random. It's haphazard. You look at um, a book by um, Richard Aram called Academically Adrift, where he basically uses a very powerful assessment, a good test. I believe in good tests called the College Learning Assessment, CLA, and discovers that half of our four-year graduates have no more ability to think critically or communicate effectively than when they started college. Half. What's the value added? What's the return on investment? So then you go on to skills that that are not even addressed at all in college. The ability to work collaboratively, the ability to take intelligent risks, the ability to learn from failure. Uh, These are things that are completely antithetical to our education system and yet are absolutely essential in the workplace today. Yeah. And I think that uh, I constantly get students asking, it's saying to me, and I believe that I teach a different style, that I teach project-based learning that's, you know, the end result is they're doing something, interacting with the world. So I think that I, I haven't had people come in and, and, and verify this, but I think I'm doing something in a style that, in a style that works. And consistently students say, I never knew that I could learn this at all. Certainly not in a classroom. It's, well, you know, that's my word. <laughs> You'd have to talk to the students. And I, and I, to get it for, you know, because I think that's the case. And I'm always trying to figure out how can I verify this? Because I certainly keep in touch with a lot of students. I tend to keep in touch with the ones who love the course the most. So I may be having some selection effect, but I believe it's working pretty well. And you talk about, we're not teaching them behaviors and skills. And I often look back and say, we are teaching behavior and the behavior is to sit in rows and not to, it's like, this is what's important. These subjects in this order, in this way. And so the net result is, they graduate having learned how to sit in rows or how to undermine that or both. Completely agree. I mean, we're teaching compliance and uh, obedience to authority. And your whole point about the leadership that's required today is that you, and entrepreneurship is that you have to be willing to question and, and to take intelligent risks and to take initiative, as you point out in your new book. Yeah. I keep getting students, not just students, actually everywhere in life, especially when I talk about leadership, especially when I talk about the environment, I constantly get this question, how are you going to convince so-and-so to do whatever? And the word convince to me is like, it makes me bristle, but it's like a trigger word or something that makes me just like, when I hear the word convince, I substitute the words provoke debate because it's going into this factual way of doing things that's actually, if you look at the behavior that what happens when you try to convince someone, my observation is that it generally gets people to emotionally, it's, it's implying, I know something that you don't, here's something, and you're gonna, I'm going to change your mind. But that implies that the person trying to change the mind wants something from the other, which means that the person who you're trying to convince feels like, well, they want something from me. That means I'm, I have more value in this situation. Why would I want to change to be like them, to be wanting? And so I just stick with the way I am. And I'm like, now that doesn't mean that there's no way to change people's minds. There's no way to influence people. It's just that everything I learn in school is counterproductive in terms of influencing people. It's all about, I have authority, you don't. I know something, you don't. I'm going to tell you facts. You're going to accept them. Yeah. And it's not convince, it's coerce. I mean, that's because you could use convince in another context. You could say, I find the analysis or the evidence very convincing, very persuasive. Then, then you're really, you're relying on the scientific method. You're not relying on seduction. You're not relying on authority. You're not re- relying on coercion. So the, to me, that's in a completely different realm. But, and we need to teach the difference between, you know, really using a coherent, reasoned argument 
which uses evidence or using the scientific method to create a convincing case, which can be questioned, doubted, poked, and prodded versus, you know, a fiat or, or simply uh, an authority's point of view. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction between coercion and convincing. A school uses coercion, I feel, because you're being judged and you are being graded. And that means that if you don't perform, there's going to be ramifications that you don't like. And that feels like coercion. Yeah. And it's a reward and punishment system. That's what it is. Yeah. It's behaviorism. It's, it's, it's Taylorism and it's B.F. Skinner all wrapped in together. And they, by the way, are connected. You know, Taylor was all about improving it, kind of the, the assembly line uh, through rewards and punishments and, and standardizing virtually every behavior. Uh, Todd Rose's book, The End of Average, is a wonderful analysis of how the industrial model of the economy has led to the industrial model of education and learning. I'm also curious what can be done about it, what you're doing about it. And before you answer, I, I want to frame it, at least I'm going to be listening to it in part because I think a lot of people's work on the environment is also coercion-based and convincing-based. And so I'm curious if what you're doing in education applies to what people are thinking about doing and trying to do in the environment. Well, there's an overlap for me. There always has been. I grew up on a farm, and then I had the, the rare kind of privilege of being also <laughs> sentenced to eight weeks of summer camp for five years of my childhood. So between the two, I grew up very close to nature. I grew up constantly outdoors uh, and craving that and needing that in my soul. In fact, I share the same birthday as Henry David Thoreau and later went on to read The Heart of Thoreau's Journals, which to me was profound. And so being able to act personally, uh, whether it's kind of helping to clean up a trail or um, other kinds of personal acts from a young age has always been important. And then I went on to write uh, my undergraduate thesis when I was going to this, my third college after I dropped out twice. Uh, this was a very experimental college where I could basically design my own curriculum, design my own studies. And I wrote an interdisciplinary thesis on the environmental crisis in 69-70. And uh, I argued that it was both a, an economic problem basic contradiction between an infinite growth economy and a finite environment. But I also argued it was a spiritual problem because that we have been educating kids to be passive consumers. And not only that, to, to derive, you know, meaning of life from possessions, from having versus being. I was very, also very persuaded by the work of Eric Fromm, who wrote a book among many others called to have or to be also the same society. So to me, the challenge has always been both personal and, what you might say, uh, economic and environmental. Personal challenge is to live more simply, to be aware of the seductions of the consumer society, to try to not buy those things that I might want or crave or think I need. And to me, that's a constant challenge, is to really live to create, not to consume. And then to think about, in the broader context, how is that can connect to my education and my work in education, it's the same promise that we have to empower students to help them understand uh, through kind of play what their passions are, what their purpose is, and to feel the, the, the creative spirit alive within them and to derive their meaning of life from the, the fulfillment of that. I'm going to keep going with where you went, even if it's away from what we were just talking about before. I love this word dialogue, which I thought contrasted with monologue. I used to think dialogue was two people talking, but it's dia is flow. So I, flow of words. Because first of all, when you mentioned Thoreau, you know, I, I constantly talk about my role models for leadership and I constantly say, I, I go like this, Mandela, Gandhi, King, and then I'm about to say Thoreau. And I usually don't say him because he doesn't, he didn't practice leadership in the same way as the others. But to me, it's like such a natural fit. And when I started acting environmentally, and, and my language still reflects this to my, I should do something about this because I talk about how I avoid packaged food. I avoid flying. And it's no longer like that because I've re, once I've, it's not what you get rid of. Or it's, in my case, it wasn't what I got rid of. It's what I replaced it with. So it sounds to the outside like I'm avoiding packaged food. But man, you should see me when I'm eating my vegetable stew. It's like 
I, I can't get over how delicious it is. And same with the not flying. People hear not flying and I say it, but what I'm really feeling is a connection to my community that I never had before that I just bypassed or not bypassed, but like didn't care about. And to now I feel like, like I see most of the food packaging I see is like on the ground, on the littering and it's disgusting. Exactly. And I don't like feeling disgust, but I would rather, if there's something disgusting, I would rather feel it than pass it by. And yeah, there's some deep connection between leadership, education, and the environment that I think you, you just mentioned. Do other people see it? I mean, certainly when I see Dewey's title, it always hit me like education and democracy. I felt like that was a little highfalutin there, I thought. But now I see, I, th- I feel like you can't have one without the other. They go together very well. I feel like environment fits in there too. Well, I just think there's so many levels of this. As human beings, we have to interact with the environment in order to live. When you go back to the earliest humans, some had to to kill animals or to be hunter-gatherers and find nuts and berries until they figured out how to farm. So we have always had to interact with the environment in order to live. We need nature. And sometimes that leads to a kind of deep reverence for nature, but often it it doesn't. It leads to a profound abuse of nature. And to me, one of the challenges of education is to help kids understand the world for which they have to be prepared. Uh, and not by lecturing at them, but by enabling them to experience the world, to raise the, to, you know, they innately have questions. Kids are naturally curious. The average five-year-old asks 100 questions a day. But then something happens. We call it school. Because the longer kids are in school, the fewer questions they ask, the, the less their curiosity is respected, nurtured, or stimulated. But if we really take seriously uh, respecting kids' curiosity, nurturing that. And that invariably leads to questions. Kids have lots and lots of questions about the world around them. And it, if you listen to them and you, and you highlight them and underscore them and provide them opportunities to answer their own questions and to discuss and debate with, with their peers and with adults, they are going to see the world around them with naked eyes. They're going to see the environment. Josh, they are not blind. I mean, you've got that wonderful young woman. Who was it in Sweden or Denmark? Greta, yeah, Sweden. Who just said, you know, I'm not going to school. School. Why why waste 10 years of my life going to school when we we may not have 10 years to save the planet? And the people who did that, and, and she also points out, the people who did go to school and they followed that path and they came to these conclusions, we ignore them. Do I want to go off and be ignored? Right. So, you know, I think she's a a modern day heroine. Uh, And it all came from the fact that, you know, she was alert and awake to the world around her. And that is one of our essential jobs as educators, to help young people uh, to affirm their questions, to, to nurture their curiosity so that they are aware and awake to the world around them. And that has everything to do with democracy and being aware of people who are bullies, whether they're bullies in the classroom or bullies in the presidency, uh, as well as to be aware of people bullying the environment, so to speak, and the threats and challenges to our future that we face. So to me, they've always been interconnected. She speaks so plainly, so clearly. So everyone who hasn't watched, I recommend watching her TEDx talk, and or I think it was a full TED talk, I, I forget. There's one thing that she said. She said, I do want you to panic. And panic to me is what you do when you don't know what to do. And I think we generally do know what to do. You know, it's pretty clear. Like, it's pretty easy to buy less plastic. And of course, there's lots of things to do. But actually, I was going to say, like, or influencing governments and corporations seems to me very important. But I still think the most effective way for any of us to influence those places is to influence ourselves first. This morning, by chance, I... I'd made a comment on someone's unschooling blog from a while ago and someone happened to have commented on my comment. And so I happened to go to the page and it was a mother, it's a mother with four kids and she unschools her kids. She used the terms unschool, homeschool. And 
there were all these pictures of her kids learning and they're, they were really all outdoors playing in the outside. And it was exactly what you said. It's like, I think they're learning science in a way that sometimes when I look back at my full PhD in physics, and a lot of it was learning what happened in the past, but not really practicing science in the sense of discovering about the world and sharing what I discovered. Scientific method. They don't learn anything about simply observing carefully and asking questions or developing hypotheses. They memorize the definition of the word hypothesis, but they don't know what it really means to have one and then to test it. Yeah. And as much as science is important to me, I think even higher level than that is we learn in philosophy classes, say what values are, but not our own values, which as far as I can tell, can only come through practice, like practicing them and seeing when one value comes in conflict with another value. And then what do you do? Because, you know, everyone values family, everyone values their health. What happens when those, we have to pick one over the other. Those are the kinds of challenges that I never had in school. I could write about. And so when people say, I care about the environment, yeah, they do care about the environment, but they also want to see the Eiffel Tower. And now suddenly the value of the environment usually doesn't really surface as as a value there. And it's weird when you have a whole population of people saying their values, but not acting in, in, in concert with them. I'm also curious, most of the people listening to our voices right now are going to be themselves adults out of school, maybe some in college. And you've been talking a lot about people learning while they're in school. So when you're an adult, you've, most of us have gone through that course of system. And now we might be used to learning in a way to study for a test or write a paper. Can we unlearn how we used to think about education and keep educating ourselves now? If so, what can we do as adults for ourselves? Here's one uh, idea that I've kind of thrown out that people seem to respond to. Uh, and that is to, to keep a question journal. I, I initially proposed this as something students uh, can be encouraged to do in school. But then I realized, of course, if, student, if teachers don't do it, then students probably won't. So here's the idea. You simply start by writing down the kinds of questions that occur to you. Maybe, you know, I used to keep a teaching journal where I would do a lot of that. And I kept a little three by five card in my pocket. These days we have our phones, so we just dictate it in. But then every once in a while, I used to do this every Saturday morning, you sit down, you take out your questions. And you pick one or two that seem really interesting and important to you. And you spend an hour maybe journaling, maybe thinking about it, maybe writing about it, maybe meditating, maybe doing some research. But the whole idea is that you take your own curiosity and your own questions seriously, no matter what your age, no matter what the questions are. To me, that is the wellspring of learning. That's the source, is your own curiosity, your own questions, your own sort of wonderings. And the more we learn to listen to that inner voice, the more alive we're going to be. And the more we, we will sort of engage and interact with things that are really interesting and important. Very simple. Yeah, I'm just thinking, as you're speaking, I'm like thinking of going down and like a bewildering number of questions pop up in my head of, you know, what does happen to recycling when I put it in there? What does happen to compost? Why does my co-op board resist collecting food scraps in my building for the city to pick up? What's motivating them? And it's just... A lot of questions. And it's funny that the natural thing is, I don't know the answer. Let's move on to something else. But to say to write it down puts you in a different mindset. It does. I, I just, I'm such a profound believer in the importance of reflecting. And I, I personally have found some kind of writing or journaling to be the, the most direct way of creating time and space to reflect and to find out what's, you know, what, what's important to you. You know, there's this dynamic interaction between thought and feeling, which in learning, that we pay almost no attention to. Very often, the questions that are important have an emotional power to them, but you only feel that if you stop and listen. And writing is a way to do that, or meditation is another. Although I think mindfulness doesn't necessarily lead to sort of 
having your questions be taken more seriously by yourself. Uh, that's more of a discipline of letting go of whatever it is you may be thinking, which has its other its own value. But I'm talking about something different. It's funny when I meditate, I'm usually trying to focus on my breath. That's my goal. And then sometimes questions come up and I pursue them. And I'm like, I feel like I'm indulging in something. I'm like, I'm supposed to go back and pay, go back to the breath when my mind wanders. But sometimes I'm like, let's go with this. It's fun. Well, you see, that's where, where I think journaling has such value because it is a focus and a concentration and kind of that, that enables you to, to go somewhere with, with some depth. And it's tangible. It's there in front of you. I really only know something when I write it. And maybe other people have other ways to know something deeply. But to me, it is the fusion of thought and feeling that happens when I write. I do a lot of assignments for my students to write, to make videos. I used to have them present to the whole class, but then that took forever. And they didn't get a chance to redo it and edit and see the results and, and change it. So I, I find that performance for others is something that brings out a lot. I agree. Uh, very often, I mean, it's interesting you said that because I have not really thought so much about that. But when I uh, give a talk, sometimes I'll say something in a new way or have a new insight that I simply wouldn't have had all by myself in a room. And so I think it's, it's, you're right, it's both. It's time alone, reflection, and it's also interaction and dialogue with others that can provoke uh, new questions, new ways of thinking, and, and new insights. Now, uh, one of the questions that popped in my head, especially because of what you said earlier about initiatives, I can't help but indulge myself in, so now you've read initiative and you read leadership step by step. These actually emerged from a lot, as I mentioned, from leadership, from most likely to succeed. And you wrote very, I mean, the blurbs are in the books. I'm curious of, of your thoughts beyond that, if it's not too putting on the spot to ask about my work. Well, as I, I think I mentioned, your description of all of the ways in which we are educating students to be compliant, to be afraid of taking initiative, to fear failure, I think is a profound effect that we really haven't analyzed. You know, human beings learn through trial and error. That's how we learn. How do we learn to talk? How do we learn to walk? What if somebody had said to us, I'm sorry, you cannot talk until you are able to talk in complete and grammatically correct sentences. Paralysis. Same with walking. Sorry, only a straight line, none of this crawling stuff. Bicycle riding, oh my gosh, that's out of the question because we know you're going to fall and skin your knee. So we are training kids to be terrified of mistakes and errors. And yet in the adult world, particularly in the innovation economy, trial and error is the methodology. I mean, they call it iteration going from 1.0 to 2.0, but it's trial and error. And if you really think about it, I've done this countless times, Josh. I've asked large audiences, how many of you have learned more from your mistakes than your successes? And nearly every hand will go up over and over again all over the world. And then I simply ask, well, then why? Why on earth do we penalize kids for making mistakes and making them terrified of so-called failure? I want to get rid of the F word in school, Josh. Get it completely out of our vocabulary because it paralyzes teachers as much as it does kids. Teachers are afraid of trying something new for fear that they'll be, you know, fail and, and be punished by the, the students who say, I hated that, or the parents. So to me, it's one of the, and I, I think you really do pinpoint, the, you know, the destructiveness of this problem for, for ed, leaders being you know, paralyzed and unable to take initiative, unable to try new things and learn through trial and error. I think you're exactly right. And you describe it clearly. Do you know, you must work with Peter Gray. I know his work. I haven't had a chance to okay. work. Yeah, he was on here and I was reading his, um, one of his Psychology Today posts about schools being, it's, there's more work, there's less freedom, there's less time on your own than prison. And then, then their parents and the feeling I got listening to you just now was like the feeling there of just like, what are we doing? And we don't notice it. It's just become so ingrained that we don't even think about it. And then when you start, now I'm going to mix the metaphor, but you know, when you start pulling at the thread that the whole sweater unravels, you know, and then most people just would rather not do that. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. 
Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I want to go switch the environment if it's not too abrupt a, a switch. It's, it's been something that you've been working on, that you've worked on for decades. And it sounds like it's as important to you and meaningful to you as education and everything else. It, it, it tied in very closely. What is it, when you think about the environment, what do you think about? What's the, where's the motivation coming from? Well, I think it, for me, first and foremost, comes from a profound love of beauty, love of nature, look, particularly of natural beauty, and feeling a deep connection to it. I used to go for long walks all by myself on the farm when I was seven or eight. And the same in summer camp. I would wander off, you know, when kind of nobody was looking. We had a little bit of free time. Other kids would be playing tetherball or whatever. I'd, I'd go off in the woods and just sit and listen. And to me, I, I still do that. I live on a lake now. And it's 20 miles from where I went to summer camp as a kid. And I just feel this profound connection. And, and it, I, I hunger for being out in nature, whether it's snowshoeing in the winter or sculling on the lake, kayaking, hiking. You know, I, I just crave it. And it, it's something that I, I need to be a part of my life. And, and out of that very personal need, has, you know, because I'm aware of what's going on in the world, because I do read, has come, you know, this understanding of all of the ways in which we are profoundly threatening our ecosystem. And even, you know, let's reflect for a minute on that word ecosystem and ecology. I hated science in high school. You know, <laughs> I asked people, you know, all of you in my talks, all of you took chemistry. So surely you have memorized the periodic table and you can tell me how many elements there are, right? <laughs> well, some laugh, others try a number out. And I'll say, no, that's wrong because two more were added last month. <laughs> but my point is we, we teach science in ways that have absolutely nothing to do with the world that actually is around us. And I discovered ecology when I was about 21 on my own. I started studying the environment. And I was, I read the pollution papers and, and Paul Ehrlich and the, the population bomb and a bunch of other books that came out then. This was in the mid sixties, late sixties. And that led me to kind of try to understand and study ecology. And ecology is the interconnection of all of these separate and discrete science topics that we cover and have kids memorize. But if you really understand ecology, you see the, how, how profound yet delicate the fabric of life is all around us, whether it's in the dirt in front of our step or whether it's, you know, in the atmosphere. And once you begin to understand the dynamic interactions of the environment, I don't mean in any particular technical sense. I'm a recovering high school English teacher, Josh. I'm not a scientist. But it has become you know, clear to me at a very young age that there's a fundamental contradiction between this infinite growth economy, whether it's a socialist infinite growth economy or a capitalist infinite growth economy, and a finite environment. We're simply, there's no throwing away. You say, oh, I'm going to throw this away. <laughs> no, there's no away to throw anything to, unless it's totally bio biodegradable and completely non-toxic, there is no away. Because we, we live in this finite environment, Josh. And I've, I frankly think we have very, very little time left in which to solve this problem, or even to address it. And so to me, it's thought and feeling, the feeling of closeness to nature, craving beauty. And I'm unbelievably fortunate. Many people don't have the kind of access I have. And I'm very, very aware of that. And I'm kind of strive to find ways to enable other people to experience nature in the ways that I have so that they too can have a reverence for nature and a reverence for life, which I think 
has to be the wellspring for tackling the problems of the environment. I think it has to start with a kind of reverence for the world around us and an, and an awareness of its preciousness and finiteness and all of the ways it can be very easily destroyed and disrupted. It's very refreshing on a personal level, independent of the content of what you said, of the connection that you have. A lot of I've asked this question of hundreds of times, and most commonly the answers, I, they often get a, what I call a cocktail party answer, an answer that's like socially acceptable, but not connected, not not emotionally connected to the person, not connected to, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, there's too much plastic in the ocean. We should do something about that. Uh, nothing, I'm, I'm being a little glib there. So correct me if I'm wrong. This is something that you are conscious of and act on on a daily basis and have been forever. Uh, I live it every day or try and, and try to be more aware, but I live every day with an, a profound awareness of nature and the delicacies of the ecosystem and the need to educate people about it. You know, in a few hours after this conversation, I'm going to chair the education committee of the local science center. It's called the Scrum Lakes Natural Science Center. And our mission is to help people more deeply appreciate the world around them. You know, we have some animal exhibits and nature exhibits and also education programs in schools. And I've been chairing this committee now for six years and trying to move us more towards helping people understand not just how beautiful the environment is, how amazing, you know, that coyote is that we have or those bears that we we see on the trails in our trail exhibits, but also all of the ways in which what we see and love around us is threatened. And the threats are imminent. They're not theoretical. They're not abstract. They're not debatable. They are imminent. You mentioned awareness and education. And I think also tied in with that, correct me if I'm wrong, but also action. And I think when you say education, it means there's always a behavioral component. I don't think I'm over-interpreting there. And well, I'm going to ask you something that I ask all my guests. And sometimes it's, it's ironically a little more challenging for people who, when things have already integrated into their life. But I ask people if they can think of something based on what you said, what you care about to think of something that you weren't already doing that, you know, it doesn't have to fix all the world's problems overnight. It doesn't have to, it's not about others who are trying to do what the New York times or Greenpeace says that you should do, but just something to act that you might not already be doing if it's not already completely integrated. But a lot of people, even if they've done a lot of things, they still, there's often something that like, Oh, you know, I have been meaning to do X or Y and I wonder if there's anything that you could do to act on something that you're not already doing, act on what you cared about that you're not already doing. Yeah, yeah. So because I've spent a lot of time thinking and reflecting on this, both personally and professionally, I don't know of anything offhand that comes to mind that I've been meaning to do but haven't done. What I struggle with, very honestly, is buying less stuff. And that's an everyday struggle Mm -hmm. because, you know, I love the technology. You know, while I'm a recovering high school English teacher, you know, I, I love my, my different devices and what they can do. It's not just loving them for the sake of, you know, some shiny new object. But, you know, I, I track my, my rowing on my wrist and I, I upload that. And, you know, that's just one example. And I try to look at my workouts and see how I'm doing relative to how I used to do because I'm getting older now. Does that mean I'm slowing down? I don't know. So it has a health component. You know, I have the Apple Watch because of the health component, uh, being able to track a lot of different health elements. But did I need that Apple Watch? Should I have bought it? I mean, I, I honestly, I, I struggle with this every day, Josh. So this might be worth pursuing for a second here because I'm not asking, what I'm not asking is for permanent change. It can be as temporary as the guest wants it to be. And the way you're speaking reminds me of, uh, I had Vincent Stanley, who's uh, director of Patagonia on the show. And he, he, I forget the details of it, but it was that he, for several hours a day, or maybe one day a week, he was going to go technology free. So for a certain amount of time, he would just not have the phone, not the la- no laptop. And, it, and if I remember right, a book of poetry emerged from this challenge. And for me, it was, I want to make sure there's a measurable a measurable result. And 
as long as something's consuming less power, I'm like, okay, great. It works. And it was really, it had a bigger effect on him than he expected, but I can say that about almost everyone. Yeah. What's been coming to mind is we've been talking very honestly. I just finished my seventh book, which is a memoir. And it, in the book, I really kind of reflect on my early formative learning experiences and all the ways in which school was the opposite of real learning. And then kind of the ways in which I've sought, you know, more authentic learning and then how that profoundly influenced what kind of teacher I became. And then I described my first 10 years of teaching and how I worked hard to be a different kind of teacher. Hey, right. The memoir is done. I'm just copy editing it this week. It'll, it'll be out early next year. It's called learning by heart, but I've been talking with you about things today that I've never written about, uh, about this connection between the head and the heart in terms of connectedness to the environment. And you know what I'm really thinking now, honestly, is I should be writing about this. I thought maybe that was my last book, the memoir I just completed. I thought, I don't have anything new to say. I don't have anything more to say. <laughs> I don't want to waste any more trees <laughs> cutting them down. But maybe, maybe it's a blog, maybe it's a video, I don't know. But it occurs to me that as we've been talking, as you prompted me with wonderful questions, I do maybe have something more to contribute and to offer. So I honestly think that's going to be the commitment that comes out of this conversation. I have to comment. Uh, I'm really humbled by to for someone on his seventh book to say, you know, I was done and there's something more. And it also resonates with the pattern that I often hear from guests, which is that they're like, you know, there was that thing. And it didn't seem that important, but I didn't consciously decide it wasn't that important. It just kind of didn't feel like worth doing. But now that I'm doing it, it feels worth doing. And in fact, it's the most worth, not maybe not the, the most, I don't want to use a superlative, but you know, eminently worth doing. It keeps happening that some of the things that, something about environmental, working with the environment, connecting with the environment, sharing about the, those experiences, it seems really visceral it consistently connects people with their communities, these, these challenges. It consistently gets people to change seeing other, maybe this wasn't the case for you, but I bet it will be just because of the pattern is that people keep thinking before they do it, oh, well, what's my wife or husband going to, you know, how am I going to get other people involved? They switch from seeing others as part of the problem to being part of the solution. And what you said felt to me more deep and meaningful than I expected. Very pleasantly surprised. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised. <laughs> well, I, I think it's kind of wonderful when other people surprise and delight us. Why not? Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, that's a great word, the apt word. Now, I'll push on one thing, which is that I make one of the conditions. I'm not sure if, it, if I have to hear. It has to have a measurable effect of some effect on the environment. But I'm not sure if that's necessary. I mean, it feels like this qualifies. I've just over, the, over all the conversations I've had. A lot of people do stuff of like, they're going to educate others or they're going to become more aware. And I insist with them that they make sure that the component has something that's changing the environment. Like recently someone said she was going to go and she was going to bring her cousins to a polluted beach so they could see what happens to the pollution. And I said, are you actually going to have a measurable effect that you personally have a measurable effect, not just them? And then she was like, oh yeah, I'll pick up garbage when I'm there. And then, you know, it, it changes. It's something changes when you're just showing versus, you know, they're going to walk away with some garbage in their hand. Yeah. I, I'll just have to think some more about that offhand, Josh. Nothing immediately comes to mind because these are things about, as I mentioned to you, about which I've been thinking and acting for a very long time. And also having been recently copy editing, I feel like it's tough when you're in copy editing to think at a higher level. Of the next, and you got to finish one book before starting the next one. In my, that's, I'm only on two. Can I ask this? Could we talk again to hear how things have evolved? Whether it's, uh, I don't know what the right time from now would be, but would you be up for sharing how this idea has evolved? Sure, maybe in a year or so. Give me some time. Okay. So if it's cool with you, I'll put it on my calendar, something like six months from now. Check with Tony, hear how it's going, if he's ready for in the upcoming months would that yeah, work? Sure. Okay. I'd like to wrap up with uh, a couple of questions. One is, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's, that should come up? And the other is any message directly to the listeners? No, I think you've asked some great questions. It's been a wonderfully 
provocative conversation. I, I guess I would go back to what I said earlier as a message for listeners. Take time to listen to your own questions and wonderings and worries. I don't mean personal worries. I mean worries about the world around us. Shot them down. It doesn't take any time at all if you want to, you know, dictate them into your phone or shot them on a, on a three by five card. And then take a little time on every once in a while to pull out those questions, that list, and, and maybe look at the one that just seems to stand out and be particularly interesting or important or concerning. And take the time to learn more about it. What I'm really saying is honor your own curiosity because it is the wellspring of what is often most vital about what it means to be human. Tony Wagner, thank you very much. My pleasure, Josh. Thank you for your great questions and provocations in the best sense. Think about it. Kids have questions. They're full of questions. And school stops them from asking. Applying what I said in the introduction, if we apply how education stops people from asking, leadership, as we practice it, compliance-based, it stops people from wanting to do things. It stops people from doing things. People who come through our school system try to influence through coercion. I've seen it, for example, in scientists trying to pass laws on regulating environmental things. They think that they're right. They may be, but they're trying to bypass democracy. Do they not see the problem in this? Just going straight to senators and saying, just pass this law without going to the people? People who disagree with them also think that they're right too. And, well, they often win elections. So these coercive techniques, they backfire when you don't have democracy on your side which is now, I don't think that's what we want. So I recommend reading his books. Start, I highly recommend watching Most Likely to Succeed. It's available lots of places, especially if you have kids or you interact with other people. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.